This is Talkback, 721-1290 or 1-800-568-5309. This is News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM, KGVO. Missoula's news and weather station. Hey, welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. It's the Wednesday edition of Talk Back. Talk Back this morning is sponsored by Brooklyn Bagel and Bakery. Authentic New York bagels and pastries all the way from Little Italy, flown in direct. Can be found right here in Missoula, out on North Reserve at Brooklyn Bagel and Bakery. Also brought to you by Phillips Janitorial. If you need a home or a business that needs cleaning, well, they'll be happy to come by and give you a free estimate. No job is too big or small. I give them a call today at 260-6617. The views and opinions expressed on TalkBack are not those of the staff, management, or advertisers. Well, welcome back, everybody. Glad to have you along. And we are thrilled to have uh, Nick Christensen back in his assigned place. Nick, welcome <laughs> back, man. Thanks. I'm happy to see the building still here. How, how, was, uh, how was Sin City? Uh, they got a little bit of my money, but I didn't go broke. So, I mean, that was okay. It was, it was fun. Still recovering sleep schedule-wise, but right. yeah, it was a good time. So well, you went to uh, Vegas? I did. Just yeah. got back uh, late Monday night. So. Did you uh, fly Allegiant? I did, yeah. So even I say, God bless it, you got back. <laughs> yeah, no delays or anything, too, so we were <laughs> lucky. Yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah. They would not dare delay his flight. They know better, yeah. Yeah. especially or, or, the flight there. Or, or your dad's flight, for that exactly. matter. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, all right. So so uh, we have special guests here in the studio this morning, our friend Bob Seidenschwartz uh, joining us from the Montana World Affairs Council. And we're going to talk about a book today, and the author is, has blessed us with his presence today. Uh, we're, we're thrilled to have Christopher Preston joining us this morning. Christopher, good morning. Hey, good morning. Nice uh, of you to have me on. It's a pleasure to have you, sir. Bob, it's all yours. Well, I, actually, I have this you right. Know, you have like a little bio. To, I do, uh, yes. yes, yes, yes. All right, here we go. Uh, uh, this is an inspiring book at wildlife species that are defying the odds, teaching important lessons about how to share a planet. The news about wildlife is dire. More than 900 species have been wiped off the planet since, since industrialization. Against this bleak backdrop, however, there are also glimmers of hope and crucial lessons to be learned from animals that have defied global trends toward extinction. Bear in Italy, bison in North America, whales in the Atlantic. These populations are back from the brink, some of them in numbers unimaginable in a century. How has this happened? Well, we're going to get that answered today. Yeah. Uh, it's, a ple it's a pleasure to have you in the studio. Thanks for coming. Absolutely. All right. So, so Christopher, I'm going to ask you to, um, um, people are going to hear, of course, between my New York accent and uh, yours from uh, across the pond. Um, you had a journey to get here, so I'd like to have you tell the audience a little bit about how did you come to get to Missoula, Montana? A little bit of your background and really a very interesting book, Tenacious Beasts. So if you would share some of that with us. Sure, yeah. So I do have a slightly funny accent, which is understandable. First half of my life, grew up in southern England on the coast. Uh, I think it's delightful. I like it. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate it, yeah. Um, so on the south coast, I you know spent a bit of time outside, did some fishing, a little bit of shrimping. Always sneaking around the woods, mm -hmm. looking for rabbits and foxes, and sounds so like somebody else we've had in this studio. Uh, uh, Peter yes. Stark, remember uh, that? Uh, actually, they're, they're acquaintances. Oh, so, okay. So, well, there you uh, go. I, I birds of a feather, no pun yeah. intended yeah. here. But uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, from the south coast of England, I went to the north for college. It's a little bit wilder, a little bit rougher. And uh, by the time I finished college, I thought I want somewhere even rougher. Mm -hmm. So I decided to go to grad school in Colorado. And pretty quick after getting to Colorado, I started going to Alaska. So I kind of kept heading west and north, and as I went west and north, the beasts got bigger and more interesting, and the mountains got more extreme, and right. I decided I kind of liked that. So 
the end of the day, I ended up staying in the Rocky Mountain West, and now I teach environmental philosophy at the University of Montana. And how many years have you been at the U? I've been at the U 17 years. Wow, now. wow. So in, in terms of this journey that you've been on, um, your literary background and training in such a... Where was that interest? Uh, you know, who were some of maybe your mentors in life that kind of brought you to this, to this point as well? So I am a philosopher, and this will emerge in our conversation today. You know, I like to think about the whys and the what does it all mean about the natural world. But I'm very interested in science. Uh, I've always been interested in technology, and I have a previous book on technology. And, and then this book is on wildlife because it's wildlife that really kind of motivates me. Um, in Colorado, I studied under somebody who became known as the grandfather of environmental ethics. And, you know, that's a very <laughs> dramatic title. Right. But it was somebody who had taken his background, which was actually in theology, and applied it to the natural world and found the same wonder in the natural world that he found in his religious life. That person was Holmes Ralston III. Uh, and Holmes left a big influence on me. And so I came to want to write about the science of the natural world and the ethics of the natural world. Okay. So as this conversation unfolds, we're going to be touching on a lot of different components of our, our own humanity, history, philosophy, um, the natural world. So if there's terminology that is common to you, don't hesitate also to maybe stop and say, here's how this kind of fits in with the conversation. Here's kind of the meaning behind that as well. So uh, a little bit of teaching at the same time in terms of what we're sharing here. So I also want to mention there's an event today that is happening at the university. If you would share that with us as well. Yeah, that's right. I'm doing a reading from my book put on by the Humanities Institute. It's at 4 p.m. on the UM campus, and it's in the Dell Brown Room in Turner Hall. Okay. And a, also a shout out to Gillian Glaze, who has always been helpful in terms of introducing guests that we've had on this show. So, uh, Gillian, if you are listening, uh, good morning to you. And I would be remiss. I know we're going to have to go to a break here shortly. An event oh, is also coming up at the University of Montana starting on Monday, which is World Quest Competition. Now, of course, you probably wouldn't have any background on that, but... Um, I want to say very much a thank you to Ambassador Mark Johnson. Uh, Mark and myself were there at the very first one, which probably goes back 13, 14 years, held it at the Davidson Honors College. We had three high schools. Now, 400 kids are going to be at the university. Has it been a year since the last one? Oh, yes. Wow. Yeah. How and about that? It's just amazing. I'm not any older, Bob. I don't know. Uh, I know. <laughs> and it just feels like uh, they don't change. They're the same ages, and we just keep getting older. Exactly. But uh, a big thank you to Mark and the council, since this has been such a, an incredible event. And when I think about the journey that now, this we... Is, this is World Quest. This is the World Quest. This wow. is a competition where... The winning high school team goes to Washington, D.C. to compete against other teams across the country. Our schools have placed very well. Four years in a row, I think the girls from Gardner, little school in Gardner, Montana, have won the competition. And, well, we're uh, on the cusp of Yellowstone Park. Uh, so. Yep, and the winning team this year will be invited, I believe, to Germany to participate and to have an opportunity. So it's really grown to be a very large and uh, recognized event. In fact, third largest in the entire country. So it started, as many things do, with an idea, grows from there, you remember the story, and now you look at amongst these students and go, pretty impressive. And with that, we're up against a break. This is commercial program, so we take breaks every every couple of minutes. 721-1290 is our number. Uh, we have all of our lines open. If you are listening and you get uh, fascinated, you have a question or a comment, the telephone number is 406-721-1290. We're coming right back with more of Talk Back right after this. Time out.
It's Jesse Kelly here. Back on Talkback, 721-1290 is our number. Our phone lines are open. And Bob and Christopher, go ahead. Christopher, let's start. Uh, take us on this journey. You started with, hey, there's been a lot of bad news out there, but there's some good news happening too. So yeah. share that with us. So the bad news is real. And I, you know, I don't want to downplay that. I don't want anyone to sort of doubt that there's, there's some real challenges out there. But amongst the bad news, there's a few little glimmers of light, a few little flickers of hope. And one of the things you might all remember when COVID shut us all down, we all retreated inside and watched the news and looked out the windows. And it was amazing that there were a few animals creeping back into village squares in different parts mm-hmm. of the world. And everyone was sort of surprised. But to me, that was a little kind of hint that there's life out there. And if you just take your foot off the gas a little bit, that life can come back. So I wanted to dig into some of those stories I wanted to provide a little bit of optimism, a bit of hope, get people to feel the positive feelings that might be associated mm-hmm. with success, and then see if we can learn anything from it. Right. So that's the goal. Now, well, was, forgive me, was, yeah. was the research that you did, was it personal on the ground? Was it uh, more academic, uh, just reading? Or obviously you mentioned you, you're out there in the wilderness actually observing this. Yeah, this is very much on the ground. I, I went to these places, I met some of the scientists, I chatted with them, I went out to see the animals where possible. So actually it was a fascinating journey for me. I, I met some amazing people. I mean, one of the things you learn is you can't study animals without studying people because you run into a lot of uh, folks out there doing the good work. And so I had some great trips, uh, Alaska, Norway, Italy, the UK, uh, different parts of Montana. So these are firsthand accounts of people who are doing this work and celebrating the successes. And these people that you're describing, as I went through the book, there's challenges for all the different entities and organizations out there as well. Do you see some development of synergy? So if you're in Italy or you're in Croatia or you're in Western Montana, are these entities, are you seeing degrees of cooperation, sharing of information as well? Because that's, for me at least, an important takeaway in terms of developing some kind of database. So So every situation is different. (laughs) Every animal is different. There's different requirements for every single return. So, you know, it's hard to sort of generalize and, and say, well, there's a common thread here. But, but there, is, there is actually a common thread, and that is that uh, there's a widespread sense that it's a more exciting, more interesting world if animals are present and if animals can return. And that's something perhaps that we need today, something that can bring people together, uh, can cross political divides. And so celebrating that common sense of, of the value of having wildlife on the land was something I wanted to do in here. Right. And, <coughs> excuse me, as <coughs> we start out, and I know you had said this goes back much earlier, but I'm looking at kind of like the industrial age, and there's a very different mindset and a different philosophy in terms of the natural world that... Well, animals were to be used. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd like you to tell that story a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a couple of hundred years ago... There wasn't really much reason to imagine that uh, animals belonged on the landscape or had, you know, a particular value in place uh, as they are. Really, they were just there to be used. Uh, they were vehicles for making money. And if we could, for example, use the oil... Eat, eat, them, eat them, skin them, whatever, right? Exactly. Or use the oil in a whale to light our lanterns, uh, we would go and do that without compunction. You know, why worry about that? Um, but that was a couple hundred years ago. You know, things change. Uh, ethics changes. Values change. And I think we can track over the last couple of hundred years a turnaround in attitudes. Um, generally, people like wildlife in, in a way today that they perhaps didn't a couple hundred years ago. And, and I want to make sure that's 
down on paper and that we celebrate that. Were there any particular benchmarks that you can that you can point to to say at this date in the 1890s or 1920s or whatever, uh, this individual began speaking or, or appearing or advocating for animals that really began to help change minds? So I think a low point, at least in the United States, was around 1900. And so there was, there was a sense there that some species had got so low, some iconic species had got so low that it was time to do something else. And the bison is a good example. And uh, up on the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Reservation, we had the beginnings of a movement to restore bison uh, just before 1900. And then that was picked up later by people like Theodore Roosevelt. Um, same really with the beaver, actually. You know, the beaver reaches a low point around the uh, early years of the 20th century. With the trapping, right? Yep. And so just sort of recognizing that some of these species were going to be gone uh, really marked a turning point. At least in the United States, the environmental movement was starting to crank up around 1890, 1905, uh, that time. So that, that's probably the best pin to put in in the timeline here for when things changed. And as I, you know, you mentioned the beaver, uh, other species, often it became an economic decision. So beaver pelts were of great value in Europe. And then the innovation or use of silk comes along, <coughs> excuse me, and the fashion changes. Probably just at the right time, otherwise the beaver are gone. Yeah. So sometimes it's pure happenstance, that situation. Nobody sat down and said, well, about another six weeks, we're at a beaver and we need to do something different. It's a change that is slow and then gets an inflection point. And that's one of the things that I noticed as I'm going through the book, which is the inflection points become critical. And people may have been working on it, but that becomes an impetus to really move forward. And Theodore Roosevelt, who was a hunter of you know renown comes back and also at the presidential level he starts to recognize and pushes forward on the conservation movement as well yeah for sure so like you said some of them are just sort of random uh events that happen a change in fashion from right. you know hats made out of felt to hats made out of silk that saved the beaver so it's fantastic it doesn't exactly cover anybody in glory because nobody went out there and said we need to save these beaver it was just a change in fashion sure um, but, you know, you, you take what you can get, and, and if things turn around at that point, you celebrate them and you try and build on that. So if you look at the conservation movement, is it being driven by individuals or is it a combination of both that and governmental? Because as we've had a guest on previously uh, that talked about uh, Devoto and what he did with national parks, right. that becomes kind of like the last bastions of these wildlife uh, areas for, you know, survival as well. So any insight on that? I, you know, I think it's always a combination, isn't it? You get some uh, very eloquent, active individuals making something happen. Uh, you get somebody in power saying, hey, that sounds like a good idea. Mm -hmm. And you get somebody protecting land and you get people piling in. What I would say is true now, though, is that you have a constituency of millions of people, probably hundreds of millions, maybe even billions of people who actually value wildlife in a way that just wasn't the case a century ago. And that's a large constituency for right. saving animals. We're going to take a quick break. Come right back. 721 is our number. If you have a question or a comment, we'd love to hear from you. Our special guest here in the studio, along with Bob Seidenschwartz, is Christopher Preston. He's a professor of environmental philosophy at the University of Montana. We'll talk about that, too. So, all right, stay with us. We have more of Talk Back on the way. 
It's one of the hottest top. This is your captain. We are going to be experiencing some slight turbulence. Please fasten your, oh, hold on. Just got a video of my cat. Imagine the pilot of an airplane was as confident as you are texting and driving. Seems kind of crazy when you put it like that. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. On Wednesday's Montana Morning, Mayor Jordan has talks about the Sleepy Inn Motel. That Sleepy Inn property unequivocally saved lives and made the city money. And um, anything contrary to that is false information. We paid $1.1 million for the building. During that time, we were reimbursed $1.9 million for FEMA from FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, for our expenses. Montana Morning Weekdays, 6 to 8.30 on News Talk 1290, KGVO AM, 98.3 FM, and the KGVO app. Okay, we're back on Talk Back, beginning uh, the, to wrap up our first half hour of a special edition of uh, Talk Back, the Montana World Affairs Council. Bob Seidenschwartz joined by Christopher Preston here in the studio. Go ahead, Bob. Uh, you mentioned... The bison or bison? What's the correct pronunciation? <laughs> oh, look, I'm an Englishman. How would I know about well, that? Well, <laughs> look, I'm a New Yorker. Doesn't mean I know much about the English language either. So yeah, well, that's true for me, sure. Yes, give well, me your well, let's best. Let's put it this way: if you go, if you go to Fargo to play at North Dakota State, it's the bison. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yes. Okay. With not a Z, the, not the bison. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, well let, let me tell you this: so yeah. they, you know, we think about bison in North America. Bison have just been reintroduced into the south southeast corner of England. In fact, where I grew up. Wow. It's a European bison and it's the largest animal that's been back on the landscape for many hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. Now, let's talk about habitat. These are big creatures and introducing a big guy like that into a very densely populated area. I mean, maybe it's a rural part of England, but still land use is Pretty much the acreage is there. They desire, right. they need a lot of space. Right. So how does that look and how are they all getting along? <laughs> how are they getting along? Yeah, it is different for sure. There aren't any great plains outside of Canterbury, which is where these bison have gone. But it's actually a slightly different animal. It's more of a woodland animal. And there are some woods there. And so these bison have been restored to a woodland to bring more ecological health back to that woodland because without a big grazer trampling down shrubs and nibbling on trees... The forests get overgrown. Um, yes, they, they're not going to roam free like they would in eastern Montana or in Yellowstone or somewhere like that. But uh, these bison are performing a function on the land, and they're also performing a function in the culture uh, because suddenly English people have to get used to big animals on the landscape. And one of the experts I spoke to there said we have to have English people change their relationship with wildlife. And that, to me, was one of the most exciting things about that bison restoration. So as they're being introduced, what work was done to kind of pave the way? You don't just plop down a bunch of big animals. Uh, there's got to be work in terms of introducing the reasons, the how, why, and where. So is there some insights that have... Pu public input. Yeah. Yeah, there definitely was public input on this one. And it's, it's wildly popular, I might say. Great. It's not controversial. Uh, it's something that English people wanted. Um, one of the big motivations there is woodland health. Uh, and you've got these ancient woodlands that need quite a lot of maintenance, and it's quite expensive to do that, and it's actually not easy to do it well. So the director of the project, who I walked around the woods with, he said, you know, we have had some people out here with chainsaws trying to create a natural forest, but honestly, they don't do a very good job. 
So talk to us about how the bison do that job. <clears throat> so, and they're not organ. <clears throat> so the bison, uh, <laughs> so here's, here's one of the lessons of the book. The animals know what to do. Um, it's like in their genes. And so, you know, you don't have to persuade a bison to do a good job of restoring forest health. I mean, it does it literally by creating openings, by trampling down vegetation, by nibbling grasses short, by creating better habitat for insects, by creating wallows, little divots in the ground that fill with rainwater, creating all sorts of microhabitats. You really benefit from studying how a bison lives on the land because they are the expert ecosystem engineers. And what's true in southeastern England is also true in Montana. So it sounds like the bison are teaching the humans how to uh, create a habitat or uh, enhance a habitat that will be beneficial for that species. Yeah, and that's actually one of the underlying lessons that I try and tease out through the book because you could say the same thing about beavers. If you watch and you learn the animal becomes the teacher. The animal is the expert. Mm -hmm. and, and this is sort of a change in, in attitude. You know, we, we're pretty good at a lot of things. You know, I don't deny that. But there's some things where the animals are better at it than us. And so if we watch and look and listen and learn, I think there's something important there. Well, yeah. The, by the way, the book the book is called Tenacious Beasts. I'm sorry, Notorious Beasts. Right? No, Tenacious. It beasts. is Tenacious Beasts. <laughs> I, I had Notorious down here. I'm sorry, yeah, the Tenacious Beasts. And uh, what what you're describing to me, Tenacious, is exactly what is necessary for for these species to be able to hold on and and repopulate. Yeah. So Tenacious means you know they they got really low in populations, but they didn't want to disappear. They wanted to come back, and so they held on. They came back, and now we have a chance to learn from them. All right. We are, we're up against a break. 721-1290 is our number. Phone lines are open if you'd like to visit with Christopher Preston, the author of Tenacious Beasts. Uh, he's here with us in the studio, and we would love to hear from you. It's 721-1290, 1-800-568-5309. Or if you happen to have the KGVO app on your phone or mobile device, you can simply... Uh, Bring up the app, hit the message us button, send it, and then Nick will be more than happy to pass that along to our guests. So we'll be back with more of Talkback after the top of the hour. Hello, this is Chris Jackamick. I served in the United States Air Force, and I've deployed three times. So in 2017, I was serving as an Air Force First Sergeant. Our motto in that role is, my job is people, everyone is my business. But unfortunately, in that year, I would lose my own brother, Lance Corporal Adam Jackamick, to suicide. The majority of veteran suicides are from guns. I store my weapons securely. This is Talkback, 721-1290 or 1-800-568-5309. This is News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM. KGVO, Missoula's news and weather station. Hey, welcome back to Talkback. Talkback this morning is sponsored by Phillips Janitorial. No job is too big or small, whether it's residential or commercial. Get a free estimate at 260-6617. Also brought to you by Brooklyn Bagel and Bakery. Uh, come on by, and for all your New York favorites, they have locks, they have newer cheesecake, they have cannolis, fabulous uh, breakfast uh, bagel sandwiches located out on North Reserve. The views and opinions expressed on TalkBack are not those of the staff, management, or advertisers. Okay, we are back on TalkBack, the Montana World Affairs Council on the radio, special edition with uh, Bob Seidenschwartz, Christopher Preston joining us here in the studio this morning, a professor of environmental philosophy at the University of Montana, also author of a book called Tenacious Beasts. So, Bob, let's pick it up. Uh, do we have Dave? Uh, 
Oh, we don't have a caller. Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. I, I ran in and didn't realize we have a caller. Uh, Dave, good morning. You're on Talkback with our special guest. Hi. I kind of turned in late, but I'd like to tell a quick story about a hunting trip I took quite a few years ago. It was a bow hunt up by Big Sky, and I got there at the hunting spot, and I could see the, the whole mountainside was bare, and there you know, there was a herd of elk up there, and I was supposed to sneak up on it. And, um, well, it was very difficult climbing up that hill in two feet of snow, but, but while I was trying to climb up to them and, and stay hidden, there was square boxes of fence that were like, oh, like several blocks wide. And, and it was like a square. They were eight-foot fence, and it was intended to keep animals out. And within those boxes was just like a jungle of trees. But outside, it was like grassland. And, and it was just a way to keep the animals out. And it just the environment was totally different within that box and on the bare mountainside. I found that very interesting. Does that ring any bells with you, Christopher? Well, well, it it rings a big bell when we think about Aldo Leopold and what he noticed when predators came off the landscape is that the the grazers just diminished that vegetation down to nothing. So, you know, the lesson is you need a, a balanced system with all of its constituent members in place. And, you know, the problem that, that you're mentioning, Andy, is really common in Scotland. Uh, closer to my home country where red deer are just grazing the um, the hills and, and moors down to nothing. Uh, and without a predator, uh, you have to put up fences because otherwise the system gets out of whack. So it's, it's really an argument for wildlife, uh, many different types of wildlife, the top of the food chain, the middle of the food chain, and the bottom. Uh, so <clears throat> I'm going to mention da- something. Is, is Dave, are you still oh. with us? Okay, he's gone. Okay, Something as innocuous when you say the word fence. It's not just that simple. We still have barriers, especially for some of these bigger herd creatures that you have agricultural land and ranch land. And, you know, folks are going to be putting up fences. There's a part in the book that talks about coming up with solutions of the type of fences as well. Buffalo really don't care about fences. I, I, I will tell you that, as you probably know, well know, if you drive out to Lolo on the left, there's a pretty decent-sized herd of, of American buffalo, uh, bison, right? And so I, I'm, the, sometimes they walk up to the fence, and I'm thinking, what's keeping you, man? Just step over that thing, you know? And every now and then you'll see one running down the barrow pit, and uh, they'll have to call the cops, and, you know, they have to get it back in there. And they, they actually herd them with, with ATVs. They don't want to, you know, worry about horses. So, yes. Yeah. Well, one of the things I learned in the course of the book, actually, is that fence building is an art. There's a skill. There are specialists who study how to build the right fences because, yeah, certainly you want to keep livestock in, but you don't want to stop wildlife from being able to move across the landscape. And out in eastern Montana, they've had to figure out how to create fences that um, ans- the ant- antelope, pronghorn antelope can deal with. Pronghorn like to shimmy underneath something, and so you need to make sure that that first wire is high enough off the ground that the antelope can kind of get down and, and rub its belly on the grass and kind of get out the other side. So there's a whole science out here that I think is really interesting. All right, we have, we have some more folks who want to visit with you. I believe uh, Mr. Wingnut is up. Mr. Nutt, good morning. You're on with our guest, Christopher Preston. Go ahead. Good morning. Interesting guest we have. Uh, let me start by saying I'm a, a product of um, the University of Montana's range and wildlife programs. Um, and your your comments about beaver kind of was the impetus for my call. And, and over my decades of working for the Forest Service and the 
the large wilderness areas of Montana and Wyoming, I've had some real interesting projects. And one was you know, packing um, the fish wildlife parks would trap problematic beaver, and then we would pack them by mules back into the Zorka Beartooth wilderness and and turn them loose back in, in um, suitable habitat back there. And, and I've been involved in things like grizzly bear habitat mapping and uh, in the Teton wilderness reclaiming you know, salt sites uh, where the outfitters or private parties. What's your what, what's your question? What's up. your question for Christopher, sir? Okay, my question is uh, your prognosis on the the recent um, program to reintroduce cheetahs into India is the question I was getting to eventually. All right. Yeah, that's awesome. Th- thanks. Thanks for the call, sir. Yeah, and thanks for sharing that stuff about uh, packing beavers into the backcountry. They were dropped out of airplanes, too, with parachutes, which is really <laughs> pretty interesting. They're in the 1930s. They, they had to make the boxes out of something that the beaver could nibble its way out of in order to get into the backcountry. Um, but, yeah, so the, the story about cheetah in India, it's kind of fascinating that uh, in, in India, they've decided, okay, we need a predator back on the landscape. It hasn't been here for a while. We're going to have to bring it in. But having a more intact ecosystem is to the advantage of everybody. Uh, it also potentially generates some tourist income if the landscape looks wilder. And so I think it's within the last week or two that cheetahs have actually arrived in India and have been let back into the parks there. Now, of course, you had to get these cheetahs from Africa so because uh, it's been a while since they were alive in India. So there are some, for, for the purists, um, the philosophers say, hmm, is this the same cheetah or not? But I think... So a rough approximation is good enough, and hopefully those cheetahs are going to uh, create an ecological balance that's been missing for quite a while. And I think it's, uh, it's an exciting story. Uh, describe what that balance, how did it get out of balance, and what are the cheetahs doing to bring that back into? Well, it's, it's essentially, you know, you, you lose a predator, and, and then you, you lose a, a sort of uh, check on a particular population. So, you know, that predator's not there uh, eating the smaller mammals. Those smaller mammals overpopulate. Those might have impacts on birds, for example, if they're feeding on birds' eggs. And the system just kind of just gets nudged in, in a direction. Sometimes it's just a nudge, and sometimes it's a big whack, uh, and the system is completely out of balance. So when you get the predator back, you get some more eating of some of those mid-sized animals, uh, and then you get more chance for some of the smaller animals that those mid-sized animals are eating. And this, this happened here uh, in Yellowstone with uh, wolves who had an impact on coyotes, and that had an impact on small mammals, which had an impact on predatory birds. Uh, you get a cascade coming down from the top, basically. We're going to take a quick break. We have uh, folks waiting to talk with you. We have Andy and Jeff are both waiting to talk with you. Uh, our guest here in the studio is Christopher Preston, the author of Tenacious Beasts. And we'll be right back with more right after this. Four, eight. I'm Chris Jackamick. I served in the United States Air Force, and I deployed three times. Being a veteran, it's interwoven into your DNA. It is really the absence of the connection and the purpose that can really drive a lot of veterans to some uh, negative thoughts. For those who are in a suicidal crisis, the window of time to save somebody's life is very short. Our duty is to protect ourselves and protect our families. And one way you can do that is store your weapons safely. Store all your guns securely. Help stop suicide. Brought to you by N Family Fire and the Ad Council. Hey, we're back on TalkBack. 721-1290 is our number. Really appreciate calls coming in uh, for Christopher Preston, and I believe Andy's up next. Andy, good morning. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Uh, Christopher, thanks for taking my call. I'm looking forward to reading your book. Um, 
I guess I'm calling mostly about the beavers. They're, as as many people are aware, they're the most important animal to uh, North American wildlife into our water table. And to the, uh, your point about the, the bison, the bison uh, in western United States are extremely important for the water table, too, because of the, those wallows that, that uh, you were discussing where they uh, make uh, depressions in, in gullies and such where the water can get back down into the uh, water table rather than rushing off. Um, I just recently signed a letter t- uh, urging President Biden to uh, uh, make an executive order to make it illegal to trap beavers on federal land. So it's just beavers. Um, and that would just do so much for uh, for fire, for uh, water quantity, water quality, uh, habitat, just a, a whole slew of things. So hopefully President Biden signs that executive order. And, um, and just one one other little aside, uh, years ago, about 10, 15 years ago, there was a gentleman uh, outside of Hamilton who fenced his, his uh, pastures for Buffalo and had six or eight of them released on his land. And they came out of the trailer and then ran right through his fencing and up on a national forest. And it was during the summertime, and he he had to hunt the animals in order to get them because he couldn't herd them back down. So he had to pack that meat out in ninety degree temperatures. Um, uh, so fencing is is important. Yeah, there's a story about where there was a bison herd uh, up in the Flathead that got strangely exported to Canada in around 1907, and they they rounded up the best cowboys in the region, and they tried to get this herd onto some trains to go back to Canada. And, and they eventually, after much effort, got the bison to walk up onto the train. And, and the bison walked to the far end of the boxcar, just busted through the end of the boxcar and kept on walking. So <laughs> Ticket, please. Yeah, Ticket, the, please. These are very difficult animals to herd, for sure. Yeah. But, yeah, one of the things I heard in, in what you were saying there about the beaver is that, yeah, we can look for uh, kind of win-wins here. You know, we can look for ways that these animals do something that we don't have to do. It can save us money, and you get a cute furry creature thrown in for good measure. So, you know, this, this book is about celebrating some good news and trying to bring people together over that. Christopher. Uh, Thanks for the call. G- great call. Share with us a story about what the beaver actually does to the point that the caller made. Because there's several examples that you have in the book. So tell us a little bit of a story about what this little furry fellow does. Yeah, so I'll illustrate it with a visit I made to the Metow Valley in Washington where uh, Alexa Whipple, who is head of the Metow Beaver Project, and please go online and look up their website. They're a fascinating group. Uh, She is not only a beaver enthusiast, but a trail runner. And she found after the 2014 Carlton Complex fire that her favorite trail run had been absolutely decimated by this fire. And she, when she got up there, she broke down in tears and just thought she'd lost her favorite place for the rest of her lifetime, basically. But the Beaver Project had a couple of spare beavers, and they were looking for a good home. And they just plonked these beavers down on Bear Creek. And in a couple of years, the place had been restored dramatically. And she pointed out that the, the vegetation that came back was actually the native vegetation, which had been struggling because hikers and horseback riders had brought in a lot of non-natives into Bear Creek. But after the fire and the beaver restoration, those native seeds that were buried in the landscape, uh, they uh, re-sprouted and regrew, and the place came back. It came back so quick that Alexa went back to college to do a dissertation on how beavers help restore landscapes after fire. 
And one of the things she found, which I think is really interesting, is that a beaver dam helps filter out the runoff, uh, the phosphates and the excess nutrients that would otherwise run off into the creek and kill all the fish. The dam traps those excess nutrients and keeps the creek healthier than it would otherwise have been. So, you know, beavers really are the saviors as far as Alexa Whipple is concerned on Bear Creek. All right, let's get another call in. This is, I believe this is Jeff. Jeff, good morning. You're on with our guest, Christopher Preston. Go ahead. Hey, good morning. Uh, early Montana history, for us anyway, is uh, kind of replete with wars between sheep uh, ranchers and uh, cattle ranchers. And uh, a lot of that was due to the different grazing habits of the, of the two animals. And it... Uh, led to some uh, range wars and also there's some range law that limits the amount number of animals that you can put per acre in uh, in Montana range because of the uh, high desert conditions, low rainfall, different things. So um, where do bison fall? In be- do they fall in between cattle and sheep? You mentioned that uh, they're, they're close grazers like sheep are. So I don't know. Does that... Do they have the same effect on vegetation as sheep do, or um, do, they, do they not go quite as close and, uh, you know, somewhere in between, and, and how does that work? And what is a range law for bison, do we know? Yeah, I've got to defer a little bit to the rangeland ecologist here because uh, holding up my hands, I, I'm a philosopher, right? So, uh, you know, my, my scientific expertise uh, come, has its limits. One thing I did learn in Europe, actually, when we were talking about uh, – bison recovery in Europe and also wild cattle grazing in Europe is that there is a lot to the shape of the mouth, the shape of the teeth, the way that the grazer uses its tongue. Uh, You can't just sort of sub one grazer in for another grazer. And so that's why in many cases you want to have the original grazer in place, the one which the landscape evolved to have there. Now, one thing I can say about bison for sure is that bison keep on moving. Uh, bison don't stay put, they keep on moving, and that is good for the land. Uh, it reduces grazing pressure a little bit, and the combination of the grazing and the hooves creates a more fertile soil. I mean, one, one important thing bison do is they increase the carbon content of soil. And so, though I can't speak with any expertise to you know how you compare cattle to bison to sheep, uh, bison evolved on the landscape of the Great Plains, and they do good for the soil there. With that, we're up against a break. Jeff, thanks for the call. We're going to come right back. Uh, we have, I believe, Harry also waiting to visit with you. We have several other phone lines open. Our guest here in the studio is Christopher Preston, along with Bob Seidenschwartz. Special edition of the Montana World Affairs Council continues after this. I'm Martin Hope. Chris Domine is a husband and a father. Chris is an athlete. Chris is even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris was facing a very different story because his kidneys were failing. Basically, the doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant and if you don't do dialysis, you you are going to die. Fortunately, Chris received a second chance at life, made possible by an organ donor. You know, your well-being changes from loss of hope to hope to better times ahead. More than 100 million people in America are registered organ, eye, and tissue donors. People of every age and ethnicity because they believe it's the right thing to do. Imagine what you can make possible by leaving behind the gift of life. Learn more and sign up as an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Go to organdonor.gov. 
A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. On Wednesday's Montana Morning, Mayor Jordan has talked about the Sleepy Inn Motel. That Sleepy Inn property unequivocally saved lives and made the city money. And um, anything contrary to that is false information. We paid $1.1 million for the building. During that time, we were reimbursed $1.9 million for FEMA from FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, for our expenses. Montana Morning Weekdays, 6 to 8.30 on News Talk 1290, KGVO AM, 98.3 FM, and the KGVO app. Okay, we're back. This is Talk Back, uh, the Montana World Affairs Council on the radio. Bob Seidenschwartz joining us here this morning, along with his special guest, Christopher Preston, who is an environmental philosophy professor at the University of Montana, author of a book called Tenacious Beasts, and uh, he's, uh, we're thrilled to have him, and well, let's get some more calls in. Uh, Harry has been waiting. Harry, thank you for your patience. Go ahead. What's on your mind? Yeah. Yeah, good morning, and uh, thanks for letting me uh, talk to you. Uh, it seems to me that when uh, talking about, like, conserv- you know, conservation and stuff, everybody is, seems to be on board, at least when they talk about it, but when you actually start having to do something about it, you know, like, well, you can't drive your ATV or snowmobile anywhere you want. It's going to cost you some money. It's going to be inconvenient. Then it's like, oh, well, that's asking too much. I mean, you're asking, actually, I have to do something. And, uh, you know, I'd say it, everybody, everybody says, oh, yeah, we're all for conservation. But then it, you know, it's hard to actually do something. And from the lockdown, it seems like that shows that one of the best ways we can do is just pretty much let them do what they want to do. I mean, you know, let them do their thing because animals will do what they will do. And, it's, you know, we, we save the whales by not killing them. I mean, that's uh, pretty much how that works. So uh, just a few thoughts. All right, Harry, thanks for the call. Your, your, your thoughts, Christopher. Uh, that's, uh, that does happen. You know, heck, these bison are taking my favorite what picnic ground or whatever you know so uh, talk about that yeah no you're, you're right to point out that sometimes what you do is you just you stop killing them and they do all right you know? <laughs> who would have thought that right you, you just stop killing them and they do well but in in other cases no you have other cases you have to kind of do quite a bit um there was one case that i describe in the book which is pretty interesting for certainly for us in montana to to grasp in italy in the apennine mountains there's a bear called the Mosican bear It's a subspecies of brown bear, and it is coming back from the brink. There's been only 50 of them for about a century, and they're starting to creep back. There might be 70 of them now, maybe 80. So people are pretty excited about that. But to make these bears survive and to keep them out of trouble, they have to prune apple trees that exist in the hills so that the bears have apples to eat in the hills. So every year, someone has to go out and prune these trees to help these bears recover. So this this involves work. This involves kind of commitment. The California condor, you have to bring those animals back in and you have to get the lead out of their blood every couple of years because they're still picking up enough lead from lead shot uh, inside carcasses that it's fatal to them. So you, you got to work. You got to do that. It takes work. And uh, the final point I, I want to make here is that, yes, sometimes these animals cost people money uh, in terms of lost income. And those who advocate for the return of animals they have to be honest about that and they have to put skin in the game and the, the money has to be there so that nobody is forced to pay a disproportionate burden of what it costs to bring these animals back. And Christopher, it's, those issues are not going to go away. I mean, as the planet gets more people, more inter- reintroduction of species, those challenges will continue to be there. What I see happening and I want you to comment on is we're still... Maybe not early, but we're still developing our response ecosystems of how to deal 
with these issues because even when something happens, new the species is introduced, it may work for a while, but then the species goes, I don't know where the border is. I'm going to Germany. I'm looking for a little beer and sausage. And next thing you know, uh, that, that bear's got a problem. So we're going to continue to see It's hard some to see a bear in Lederhosen. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, if I could say something to that, the first brown bear in Germany for 50 or 60 years uh, showed up in front of the p police station in Bavaria and ate someone's hamster. So, like, you have this image of this brown bear, which the Germans were very happy to have back, uh, sitting on its haunches in front of a police station, chowing down on a hamster. So, you know, there are costs, and, right. you know, none of this is simple. And I, I think we get into problems, political problems, when sort of simplistic uh, principles are employed where, you know, we sort of think, well, we've got to do this. This is the only way to do this. Um, actually, every case is going to be different. Everyone has to give a little bit. Everybody has to work together. And then you can get some pretty good solutions. It sounds like a little wisdom is <laughs> necessary here. Well, I, I think a little bit of uh, sort of understanding that, that the, these animal returns, if they happen, and, you know, let's just stress again that this is not common yet. These are few and far between. But if they happen, they have to happen in sort of careful, complex ways with everybody paying attention to... Who is paying the price? You know, who's bearing the burden? And we want the joy to be shared equally. Okay. Go ahead. No, uh, along those lines, we're looking in our own state of Montana, uh, in eastern Montana, of a, you know, introduction of some pretty big species. But we've got land here, too. I mean, we've got what has been said, kind of the Serengeti of the, uh, of the West in parts of eastern Montana, intact ecosystems. We have grasslands that are still pretty rare in the United States. So you mentioned that is somewhat unique right now in the United States in terms of room to breathe, room to move. Montana does have space. You know, that there are competing interests for sure. And certainly if we're talking about reintroducing bison to eastern Montana and the American, American Prairie is an organization endeavoring to do that, it has to be done very carefully with full attention paid to the interests of people who already live there. But... Uh, part of why they're doing that is to create new economic opportunities, to create a landscape which, as you say, is the Serengeti of North America. Uh, there isn't one yet, and so to have one uh, would be, I think, a pretty interesting addition to what's going on. Uh, and so, yeah, there's, there's opportunities here, and, and these opportunities have to be explored. Then we're going to come right back. Andy is uh, back with another question, and we have several other phone lines open. Our guest here in the studio is Christopher Preston, author of a book called Tenacious Beasts. He's a professor of environmental philosophy at the University of Montana. So we're going to come right back, continue this conversation after this. Join Mark 464. My name is Teresa Barber. I was in the United States Navy and I served overseas in the Middle East and Africa. Early on in my career, I had a commander that taught our suicide prevention training, and then the very next day, he took his own life. 90% of suicide attempts involving a gun are fatal. My way of continuing my service is to help protect my community by being a responsible gun owner and by storing firearms safely. Store all your guns securely. Help stop suicide. Brought to you by N Family Fire and the Ad Council. Need to replace your social security card? In most states, you can request one online with a My Social Security account. A My Social Security account gives you secure access to your personal earnings history and benefit status. You can also get a proof of income letter, estimate and apply for benefits, and more. Save time. Go online. Open a My Social Security account at ssa.gov slash myaccount. Social Security. Securing today and tomorrow. 
produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. Okay, we are back on Talkback. 721-1290 is our number, and we have a delightful guest here in the studio with us this morning, along with Bob Seidenschwartz, Christopher... Not that Bob isn't delightful, of course, I'm but... <laughs> described as delightful, Peter, so I think that's fair. <laughs> Christopher Preston joining us here in the studio, author of a book called Tenacious Beasts. Uh, now, let, let's continue on. You had, you had a, a tale you wanted to yeah, tell. Yeah, we're, we're talking about some really critical issues, which is getting people of different interests and, and perspectives to have conversation because you're, you're, you're introducing something that could be really problematic. We at least have room to breathe in the West. So that opportunity is there. But when you move over to Europe and you're talking about countries like Belgium and the Netherlands, these are really small land masses that have been around for centuries in terms of how they've developed the land. Now things are changing. There was an interesting group that you mentioned that has a, I think, a story worth telling that I'm going to ask you to uh, share with us. Yeah, sure. So think of Europe, right? Half the land of the United States, twice the people, and yet twice the wolves. So somehow in Europe, on half the land with twice the people, you've got twice the wolves. So how can that happen? Well, I met a young woman in Germany who founded an organization called WikiWolves. And what WikiWolves does is it gets people who are enthusiastic about wolves to get out on the landscape with the farmers and help the farmers prepare for the arrival of wolves. So she showed up with some volunteers on this farmer's field. Uh, they wanted to lay fence along one side of the field. The farmer was suspicious. He was worried about these city folks showing up. And in fact, the farmer's neighbor drove across uh, the field in his car and glowered at them and you know, made them feel like uh, they better do right or they were not going to be popular. But these volunteers spent the whole weekend working on this fence line. They worked hard. They worked in bad weather. And by the end of the day, you had people having conversations and you had people respecting each other, understanding the challenges that each of them face. And uh, the, the lady who I spoke to who'd organized this, uh, this volunteer party, she said at the end of the day, that neighbor farmer who'd sat in his car scowling at them when they arrived, came over and gave her his card and said, get in touch. You know, I want to spend time with you guys. Isn't it amazing uh, that most of the problems that we have is when we don't communicate? But when we actually sit down face to face, whether it's, you know, with a, with a common interest, a common work goal or whatever, we have a chance to get to know each other. And whether we have differing, quote, political philosophies, end quote, there, there are certain goals and things that need to be done we can work together on. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, these two groups didn't start the day thinking the same thing about wolves and they probably didn't end the day thinking the same thing about wolves. But they came to understand each other a little better and they came to understand which, which issues were at stake on each side, and, and that was a good thing. All right, let's get back to the phone. Andy is back. Andy, good morning. You're back. Go ahead. Hey, thanks for taking my call again. Uh, Christopher mentioned the lead with the condors, and it brought to mind that here in Montana, over, or at least in Valley County, over half of our eagles are uh, loaded with lead in their system, and it's a horrible way to die. Um, Ryan Zinke, when he was uh, Interior Secretary, he did away with the uh, uh, ban on using lead on federal lands. So, uh... Andy, I think we lost him. All right, go ahead. Yeah, I, I would. You know, these, these are we sort of get into the politics of, of what laws need to be passed here. From the outside, and, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on this for sure, but from the outside, it looks like getting lead out of ammunition is, is a pretty easy fix. I, I wouldn't think that's an impossible one to manage. Uh, other states have done it, and uh, it sounds to me like that would be a sensible way to um, protect our wildlife. 
uh, and not interfere with um, hunting practices, which certainly have a place. You know, and very often, economics are at the heart of issues in terms of where we can move the needle. So I, I think about a friend of mine, uh, Denver Holt. I don't know if you know Denver, the wildlife expert. And Denver has been saying for years and pointing out that the growth in ecotourism has exploded. And that's a replacement for what some may fear is lost, which actually then makes these conversations potentially a little more palatable. So do you see examples where ecotourism as a restoration that we're discussing here today has really kind of led to different outcomes and different conversations to even expand that further? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you can grease the wheels with, with a bit of money here and uh, you can convince somebody that this is in their economic advantage, then certainly that, that makes all of this uh, more possible. And there's a big uh, conservation organization in, in Europe called Rewilding Europe, and they actually have a, a business wing of that organization. And that business wing invests in new economic opportunities in regions, in, in regions that are struggling, you know, regions that are depopulating uh, where young people are leaving, uh, and they're investing in potential economic opportunities to keep people on the land and bring people back. And I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? You know, if, if you can stay somewhere you love and if you can earn money doing it, you're going to do it. Mm -hmm. One of the things that uh, Governor Gianforte has been working on ever since he actually went to Congress and then became governor was, was creating and help uh, uh, strengthening wildlife management areas. Uh, so that uh, people who visit Montana will be able to have these beautiful places to visit, and yet they're still protected. It's something we've got in Montana, right? We, you know, we have wildlife. And I mean, to be honest, why, why did I end up here? You know, I came from a little corner of southeast England. It's the wildlife. I mean, it's, it's magnificent to, to be able to stand in Missoula and see elk on Mount Jumbo. Which were out in force just two days ago. I'm, I'm on the corner of Broadway about to do a little shopping in Albertons, and I look up, and of course, the white background, and I go, whoa, there they are. Yeah. It's just, and they were probably 50, 60 or more, and they are big, even from a distance, you can tell. And it was just like, I literally said, you know, this is one of the kind of special things about living here in Missoula, is that I'm going to go get something to eat, but there's the elk right up on the ridge right there. Yeah, what a treat. Yeah. You know, we, we have it all. We have, we have you know, a city life, and, and we have a, a rural life kind of right on our doorstep. Well, don't, don't forget the urban deer. Uh, there are thousands of urban deer in Missoula, and uh, a, a couple of my uh, police department friends who, who asked not to be named are actually very thankful for them because uh, he said, those urban deer are the best traffic uh, uh, patrol people we have because people have to slow down to keep them hitting them. So, uh, <laughs> Peter, I, I will fully admit I've had my moments of irritation, but I've gotten to know the group that hang out on my lawn. They know me by name now. So we have a relationship, but I'm coming down out of the rattlesnake and, of course, I see this one looking on the side, and he's looking left, he's looking right. And <laughs> I don't I slow, believe that. I, no, I slow down, he comes across, and then another female and a buck just seeing the first one goes across and traffic stopping. They've adjusted and adapted to our traffic. As much as they're out on the road, you don't see a lot of roadkill coming out of the rattlesnake. We're going to come right back. 721-1290 is our number, 1-800-568-5309. Uh, and, of course, we have the KGVO app. If you'd like to send us a message, all you have to do is hit the Message Us button. We'll be happy to pass that along to our guest, Christopher Preston. We'll return right after this. 
Victor deployed for the first time to Afghanistan in 2003. He sustained a moderate traumatic brain injury. One of the most important elements of caregiving is taking care of yourself. For many military veteran caregivers, their caregiving journey starts earlier in life and lasts longer. Visit aarp.org caregiving for a free military veteran's guide to navigate your caregiving journey and better care for your loved one and yourself. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Meet Ed, movie buff, animal lover, safe driver. Five years of driving an ambulance teaches you a thing or two. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. When I see a car trying to rush past a turning bus, I get concerned. You see, when big vehicles turn right, they have to swing wide to make the turn. And that's a lesson you don't want to learn the hard way. When trucks and buses turn, let's you and I wait. It's It's our roads. It's It's our our safety. safety. Visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. Hey, we're back on TalkBack. 721-1290 is our number. 1-800-568-5309. It's uh, the Montana World Affairs Council on the radio. This is a great program. We're learning a lot about wildlife uh, from Christopher Preston, who is an environmental philosophy professor at the University of Montana. Would you mind, just real quickly, as a quick aside, tell me about what you teach. Uh, I, I, it would be interesting to come into your, into your classroom. And, and what, 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 do you, what is environmental philosophy? If you could just give me a thumbnail description. So philosophy is about how we should think about things. Environmental philosophy is about how we should think about the environment. And the environment is people, it's animals, it's rivers, it's mountains. So it's a discussion of our relationship with what's around us, basically. Cool. So speaking of rivers, let's talk a little bit about fish. Pacific Northwest, salmon runs. Um, Fascinating history. You've described some really amazing changes that have taken place in certain areas. So if you would share that. Yeah, so I mentioned at the beginning that I came from Southeast England and pretty soon I was up in Alaska. And one of the most amazing experiences in Alaska was to witness these salmon runs. Just that massive fish kind of clawing their way up the rivers in their last acts before they die. And so so fish are the quintessential tenacious beast. You know, if you want to find a tenacious beast, think about a salmon that makes it from the Pacific Ocean up into the Bitterroot Mountains, through dams, climbing up. It's just an incredible Uh, act of will and act of strength. So salmon are struggling. Uh, One of the big reasons they're struggling is because of dams. If you can take dams out, uh, fish can recover extremely quickly. And one of the reasons this is a good topic today is that a lot of dams are getting to the age where they need relicensing and they need a bunch of maintenance in order to get that license. And it's often more economically beneficial to take that dam out than it is to try and upgrade it to meet today's requirements. And so dams are starting to come out. Hundreds of dams have come out across the nation. And the biggest dam removal to date has been the two dams on the Elwha River, which is on the Olympic Peninsula. When those two dams came out, it opened up a bunch of spawning habitat, which is mostly protected in Olympic National Park. So not only do you get the river opened up, you get the river opened up in a park where you've got protected habitat. So, Christopher, I'm going to ask you to tell us what that looked like when the dam was in place in terms of the impact on the natural habitat. Once the dam was removed, it's a cascading effect of many different species, literally right out to the mouth of the ocean and what takes place. So move us through that process. Yeah, so for 100 years, there was a dam within five miles of the mouth of the Elwha River. So... That river used to carry 400,000 salmon in its heyday before the dams were there. Whilst those dams were there, salmon could come up those first four miles and then they'd smack their head against a wall of cement. 
So there was a tiny bit of spawning right in the mouth of the river, but nothing much else. So now those dams are out. First of all, salmon have access, and all they need is access. This is one of those uh, kind of <laughs> basic points, like, you know, if, if you can make that space, they will explore that space. But the other set of interesting things that have happened is behind those dams, as we know in Missoula here from the Milltown Dam, you get a bunch of sediment. Those sediments washed out when those dams came out. They built a new beach at the mouth of the river. So the lower Elwha Clallam tribe, whose reservation is at the mouth, have a new beach, which they didn't have before. And on that beach, now that you've got these sediments, they're getting all these clams that have been missing for a century. Uh, now they can re-engage that traditional clam harvest. And what they're also noticing, which is incredibly exciting, is as the salmon start to return, killer whales are starting to patrol the mouth of that river, looking for these big Chinook salmon that are starting to come back. So it's a cascade of benefits. Now, when the salmon go up, they spawn and then they die. They also become a critical fertilizing element for that ecosystem as well. And it's not just for the immediate riverbanks. It literally gets into the root systems of these giant sitkas and cedars and such. So I want you to kind of walk us through what, again, this cascading effect is in terms of how it opened up more habitat for other species as well that had been either diminished or missing. Yeah, so, so one way you can think of a salmon. So a salmon goes out into the ocean. We don't always know where they go out to. But they go out into to the ocean to feed. When they feed, they are packing their body full of nutrients. And a salmon is, is nothing if not a watertight uh, package for moving nutrients around. So when that salmon leaves the ocean and starts heading up into the river, it is literally a packet of nutrients, and it moves those nutrients. So this is something I didn't realize before the book, but animals move a lot of goodness around the world. And the more animals you have, the more goodness gets moved around the world. So the salmon go up the river, they spawn, they die, their carcasses end up on the banks of the river and then get dragged into the woods by scavengers. A black bear will drag 600 salmon into the woods over a season. And eat only the best parts. Eating the best parts, leaving the rest for the other, for the other animals. And then as those nutrients, as those salmon decay, those nutrients percolate into the system. They end up in the tips of Sitka spruce trees. The trees suck up those nutrients. They end up on the banks of the river. Uh, they end up uh, inside birds that are nibbling away on insects. Literally, these nutrients from the salmon just explode out into the system and keep the system healthy. It, it sounds to me like, Aunt Peter, nuclear reactor. <laughs> <laughs> this is a little inside joke inside here. Inside joke. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it's a good one. <laughs> it, uh, but they have this reoccurring source of unending energy that they are putting back into the system, which recycles into all these other entities which then flows back into the ocean. So it's, it's a closed element, isn't it? It's a closed environment that we, just we, keeps feeding itself. We, we human beings think we're so smart that we can figure all this stuff out, and they've been doing it since time began. Yeah, I mean, it's great if we can kind of drive around and distribute nutrients out of the back of a, an airplane or tractor, <laughs> but why not let the salmon do it for us? You right. know, they're pretty good at it. Well, and it serves another purpose, too, which is restoring for the native population a connection to their past. Which had been missing. So yeah, in the Elwha River, there was very much an aspect of cultural restoration here as well. Ceremonies that the Elwha had not been able to practice for a century, they could pick those ceremonies up again, they could pick those clams off the beach, and they're soon, hopefully, fingers crossed, 
going to start a coho salmon subsistence fishery that they haven't been able to practice for generations. Now, are they seeing also a return of uh, a more uh, tourism to the area as well? As oh, far sure. As, so, you know, here's kind of one of those unintended benefits. If something is taken away from you, natural human behavior is, I'm going to resent that. The res- restoration of this also may develop better relations with neighbors and outside larger areas as well. So while it's hard to probably kind of quantify that, you have to think that there could be some benefits to being more open to other types of development. Yeah, I mean, I visited the site because I wanted to see this. Like, what does it look like when a dam has come out? And so, you know, I brought my dollars there. Uh, It's a win-win. Right. Oh, we have to go to a break. When yep. we come back, I'll let you talk a little bit more about that. Thank you. You bet. We're going to come right back. 721-1290. Still, our phone lines are open. We have about oh, seven or eight minutes left in our conversation with Christopher Preston. We're going to return right after this one-minute timeout. We're learning a lot and having a lot of fun at the same time. I have Christopher Preston joining us here in the studio, author of Tenacious Beasts. Bob Seidenschwartz also here in the studio. And the questions and taking your phone calls, and let's get right back to it. Ed is waiting. Ed, good morning, and thanks for holding. You're on with uh, Christopher Preston. Go ahead. Sure enough, about the Elowa, uh, the tribe up there built a hatchery. Uh, bypassing the, uh, of course, the native salmon run. They're, they've received a little criticism for that, so could you uh, talk about that? And further to the south in Hood Canal, uh, the chum salmon, which really aren't great. They call them dog salmon because they're only good for the dogs. They don't taste that good. Uh, but the tribe down there would uh, catch the fish, net them, and just strip the eggs out and throw their carcass back into the water. And the federal government paid uh, them now to uh, get rid of it elsewhere, dog food or whatever, but they get some money for that. And that's about a million and a half pounds of crab food <laughs> that that they're getting, uh, that they're taking out of the canal and doing something else with. So uh, could you talk about, you know, those two cases? Okay, thanks, Ed. Appreciate the call. Thanks. Yeah, sure. No, I have three chapters on rivers and, you know, I get into beavers, I get into salmon, I get into dams and I get into hatcheries because it's all interwoven together. And, uh, you know, one of the things about hatcheries is it's, uh, I have a line in the book where I say it's putting an industrial glove onto a biological hand, uh, trying to just, you know, mass produce salmon uh, and, and put them in the river and sort of think that's going to make it okay. Um, you're right. In the Elwha, there was a controversy about whether the tribal hatchery should be allowed to move hatchery-raised fish in this river that was recovering. And uh, one issue that came up right away is, all right, where were the eggs going to come from? Because, you know, you wanted uh, fish that were adjusted to that system. Um, the, the tribe uh, eventually came to an arrangement. Uh, they decided it was necessary to have a little bit of a bridge through the first few years of the restoration because... Um, the the river was so filled with sediment that a lot of the good spawning ground was covered up. So the hatchery has served as a bridge. And, you know, there's a question about how long the hatchery will continue to serve or not. It's a complicated question. There's evidence that hatcheries degrade the genetics of fish. You slowly get a weaker fish because it's been raised in a hatchery. Um, so it's a very complex kind of topic. And I do dive into that in the book. Um, quick comment about the fish that get discarded. It's actually not a bad thing to throw carcasses back into a river because those carcasses drift down river for a bit and then they get snagged on a rock and then they get picked up 
by an eagle, by a bear, uh, by any of the scavengers. And so actually up here, not so far from where we are in Missoula, there's a little fish trap at Powell, near Powell Ranger Station. And uh, they do some uh, spawning of those salmon up there. And then when that spawning is done, they literally go into the woods and start throwing fish around. Uh, and that's good for the woods. You're packing those nutrients back into the system. Uh, and so in a way, it is better for these carcasses to stay in a river than to be taken out and put into dog food or something like that. Okay, let's, uh, we, let's get Jeff on one more time. Jeff, good morning. We only have a few minutes. What's on your mind, sir? Uh, I just have a request. It struck me as I was listening with great interest that uh, we have a tremendous resource in the uh, University of Montana, and you have uh, Mirdad and Michael on once a month, um, and Christopher here has done a wealth of information. I was just wondering, is there a way you can maybe get Christopher back, number one, and number two, kind of look at using the the university as a resource to bring in more speakers and talk to different things uh, maybe on a more regular basis? Uh, Jeff, I, I will tell you that uh, with Thanks, our Jeff. friend uh, uh, Gillian at the university and Mirdad and myself and others, we have a wealth of people now that I think are starting to open up to the possibility and understanding because I hope Christopher goes back and speaks to his colleagues and says, this was a lot of fun. Very interesting. So we're making inroads, and that's yes. the importance of dialogue, which really reflects exactly the kind of conversation we're having right now. You bet. We have exactly three minutes left, Bob, so let's, yeah. Yeah, and I think if I ask him nicely, he'd probably be welcome to come back here again. Um, but you have, uh, let's talk a little bit about kind of closing the loop here. You've got an event this afternoon I'd like you to mention. Uh, and also, please, uh, the book, where it can be accessed and where it's available. Yeah, 4 p.m. today in the Dell. Brown Room in Turner Hall on the University of Montana campus. Uh, book just came out last week, so I'm still in that sort of buzzing excitement of a new release. Uh, you where, can, where do we get it? Anywhere you can get books. Okay. Uh, certainly local bookstores right, uh, right. have had um, copies in there, so you know, love it if you get it and be in touch. I love talking about this stuff. It, it's positive stuff. It's exciting. And it's a good way to connect with people. Yeah, and Christopher, I've never heard throughout the entire conversation today that there will not continue to be challenges. That's part of the process of going from one extreme and now moving into kind of a new era in terms of reintroduction. We know we're going to have issues, but I feel and see that the benefits in the bigger picture have a lot to teach us. What yeah. are a few of the things that you would like to say to us before we close? Yeah, you know, this is a good place to end. You know, don't go away from this conversation thinking, hey, wildlife are doing fantastic. Who's this guy talking about how well they're doing? It's a, it's a struggle. It's a journey. It's an uphill task. But let's focus on the positive stories because they are out there. And I think those positive stories are extremely instructive. And so if we kind of dig into those, we get a vision, we get hope, we get a sense of a future. I think that's better than just uh, wallowing in despair. So right. that's the goal here. And in terms of your work, do you ever have the opportunity uh, beyond university students to speak to others in the community? Sure. Actually, I do some work for Humanities Montana. Uh, I give talks in state parks, libraries, breweries sometimes when things are going right. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a way to you know, take what I do in the university and show that it has a broad applicability across Montana. Right. And I really love doing that. That's why I do this work. Uh, as we do, too. And it just uh, I think about right here in Missoula in the Rattlesnake, taking down the dam that's up that Rattlesnake and bringing some of our uh, uh, trout back. Yeah, it's right here. And, you know, I went to the Elwha, but if you read the book, after about 10 pages of Elwha, we have a couple of pages of the Rattlesnake Dam in Missoula because yeah. it's, this is kind of ground zero as much as anywhere. Cool. Christopher, it's been a great pleasure. We'd love to have you back. 
Well, thanks so much for having me on. It's you been bet. Fun. It's our, our very great pleasure. Bob, thank you, sir. Yep. And uh, gentlemen, I'll see you. We've got Peter Stark next week. And I did confirm the Israeli Council General. Great. This will be literally his first introduction to Montana since he hasn't been here physically. But we're going to have him on the radio. Excellent. Nick, what's coming up on tomorrow's fabulous program there, sir? Uh, right now it's open phones. We may have a guest. We may not. But uh, probably open phones and... We haven't had that in a while. It so. has been a while since we've had open phones. And so uh, so if you've been storing up some some thoughts and, uh, and ideas and opinions, give us a call tomorrow on Talk Back from 830 until 10. Thanks so much again to Christopher and to, and to Bob and to all of you. who our, our calls were excellent. And we'll see you tomorrow morning, bright and early, for another exciting edition of Montana.